Today's Happy Healthy You podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash happy healthy you. Over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle or MP3 player. For those of you who've been fans of Wayne Dyer as I have, you'll be pleased to hear, if you haven't already, that his kids are every bit as awesome as he is. And we have one of them with us today. Serena Dyer is the daughter of author, teacher, spiritual mentor to so many, Wayne Dyer. And she's written a new book about what it was like growing up with spiritual parents. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Happy Healthy You. I'm Connie Bowman. And let's get right into it. Serena Dyer is a South Florida native who loves travel. She loves adventure and trying new things. She's passionate about human rights. Serena recently completed her master's at the University of Miami, focusing on human trafficking. She is traveling the globe and blogging about it while also maintaining all of her great hobbies of cooking, reading, working to combat human trafficking, and being with her seven brothers and sisters. We're so excited to hear about this. Serena's co-authored her book about growing up with spiritual parents with her father, Wayne Dyer, and her mom, who sounds pretty cool in her book. It's called Don't Die With Your Music Still In You. Welcome, Serena. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm definitely happy to be here. Yeah, I really enjoyed your book. It was it was kind of funny. I decided I was going to take it with me on a little silent retreat all by myself to the beach this past weekend. And I got in the car and I made the mistake of bringing my dog. And um, you can't not talk to your dog, right? Right. <laughs> so and then I had 70s music playing in my uh in my car so I started singing along and I'm like this is not going to work so silent retreat went out the window and then when I started reading your book one of your first few chapters was about the importance of silence so I'm like I really have to cultivate this ability but I think it's going to take some planning so (laughs) well if you made an attempt that's bigger than what I usually do so good for you for even attempting it you know what thank you for that I said that to myself as well. So your parents must have been so pleased with this book. I mean, how often do we as parents receive this kind of beautiful affirmation that everything we've been saying and living and teaching has really been sinking in? So how did the idea for this book come about? Actually, the idea for the book came out of a really low point in my life. I was in a state of depression after I had made the decision to leave law school because I felt that law school was not a place that made sense for me to be. I enrolled because I was afraid of entering the real world, so to speak. So I just went from college to graduate school to law school, prolonging this. And basically, um, I got to a point where I was in law school where I was getting sick all of the time. I had uh, just a feeling of not wanting to get out of bed in the morning, and I just felt like I was dragging. My dad called me and said, um, do you think there's a possibility that you're getting sick all the time because you're doing something every day that you don't like and you're going to a place every day that you don't want to be? And I, I felt that he was right, but I wasn't necessarily ready to hear that because I was so wrapped up in what other people would think of me if I left. Anyway, long story short, I made the decision to leave thinking that would make things better, and it didn't. It made things worse. Um, I felt like up until that point in my life, everything had been easy, and who I was, 
I got an identity out of what I was doing. And when I was no longer doing anything, I felt like I no longer was anything. And I was sitting at one of my dad's conferences and, you know, it was actually the first time in my life I was in the audience because I had attended his conferences tons of times, but it was the first time in my life I was hearing him from the perspective of somebody that needed help. And I was listening to him urge the audience not to die with their music still in them. And I felt that like a punch in the gut. And the desire to write this book came out of the feeling that I had, which was, I don't know what it is that I want to do with my life. And I don't know what it is that I'm passionate about. Because that's what everybody says, follow your passion. Well, I didn't know what I was passionate about. But I knew how I wanted to feel. And I knew that the story I was telling myself didn't make me feel good. So I started a practice of changing that. And the book came out of that. Long story short, Mm. actually long story long. (laughs) How cool and how lucky that you were able to be sitting in your dad's audience and you and you were in his audience for you know 20 some years before that what do you think it is about the 20s I think the 20s are really hard I remember I went through a period where I had severe anxiety in my 20s and I think that might have been when I when I read your erroneous zones one of your dad's first books I don't know what exactly it is about the 20s it's a very precarious time I think for a lot of us especially women because We leave our parents' homes Mm -hmm. for the most part. We're figuring out kind of who we are and what direction we want to take our lives in. But we're also trying to figure out a career, relationships, um, being a woman, you know, in a woman's body in comparison with being more of like a teenager still, even when you're 18, 19, 20. So for me, I think it was that I felt a lot of pressure that I put on myself to have all the answers already and to be doing something really amazing and I wasn't and I felt a lot of shame over that and I really wallowed in that shame rather than looking at all the things I was doing yeah yeah what does it mean to you to not die with your music still in you I've heard your dad say that so many times but what does it mean to you as a 20 something year old because you know it means to me um leaving law school (laughs) (laughs) okay it meant for me, um, realizing that I was about to go down a road of becoming a lawyer and having a career based in law because I was so afraid of what people would think of me if I left. And not dying with your music still in you for me means not getting to a point in your life where you look back and think, wow, I've lived a lie. I didn't want to do that. I didn't even want to get started on that road. And I was, I was started on that road. And I, I've heard my dad say before, and I I love to remind myself of the idea that it doesn't matter how far down the wrong road you've gone. It just matters that you recognize it and turn yourself around. I think that not dying with my music still in me was me making the effort to leave, even though it meant facing my big fear, which was being judged by my peers. Yeah, that was really the first step, huh? So then we have to find out what the music is that we want to... uh bring out into the world. Um, for some for some 20s, I think it's pretty easy. My daughter, for example, I think I mentioned that to you in our email. I mean, she knew when she was in high school that she wanted to go into musical theater. So she went to college for that. My son, on the other hand, who's also in his younger 20s, still has no idea. And um, 
I think I think it's really a challenge these days because when we raise children in a spiritual atmosphere and we tell them this the sky's the limit, the world is their oyster, there's so many choices. <laughs> exactly. There are yeah. so many choices and I think that creates a different amount of pressure. So the the only thing that I can tell you that worked for me was making an effort to not concentrate on what it was that I wanted to do with my life but to concentrate on how I wanted to feel. And the only thing I knew I wanted to feel was a sense of sort of joy or excitement when I would wake up in the morning and I would be excited or joyful because I would be looking forward to my day. And at night, I wanted to feel a sense of peace or um, contentment because I wanted to feel a sense of like just feeling okay with what I did with my day that day. So I focused on those two things. Really, it was like a sense of excitement or joy that I wanted for the morning and inner peace that I wanted at night. And I made a point, a habit or a practice, if you will, of of starting my day and ending my day with those two things. And what I think I did was something that my dad told me um, to do, which came from Neville in his book, Power of, Power of Awareness. And what he said to do was, in order to have anything show up in your life or in order to manifest it, you have to assume the feeling of the wish fulfilled. So whatever it is you wish, you wish, let's say a lot of people wish for abundance or a lot of people wish for love. You have to assume in your body, what would it feel like if I felt love? And you have to begin to make it a practice of having that feeling manifest in your body, even if you're just imagining it from the beginning, because the more you do it, the more you align with it. At least that's what I was taught. I put it into practice and it worked for me. And how long do you feel like it took before it really set in when you when you started really practicing morning and evening? It took a while. At first, I could get a momentary glimpse of what it would feel like to have inner peace. I was sort of at the height of this depression. And for me, depression really shows itself in the form of anxiety, which is like tightness, tightness in my chest. Mm -hmm. So I would be able to get like a moment before I would fall asleep where I could actually feel my chest relax. And I would get this like almost tingly feeling in my body and in my head of like, wow, this is what it's like to feel like giddy almost that I'm, that I'm peaceful for a change. And then boom, it'd be gone. I'd think you're a loser. You don't deserve this. Literally, I mean, I'd have those thoughts. But over time, I don't know how long, maybe a month, it took me to go from it being just a moment to being like minutes to being another month where I was operating from that space more and more throughout the day to where I think after a few months I was actually living it. And I realized one day, like I was really living it. But in that time, it became easier and easier to live from that that space of feeling what it was that I wanted because so many situations and opportunities and people appeared in my life offering things to me that I didn't even think were possible. Like, do you want to write a book on stories of growing up with spiritual parents? If there's one thing my family could tell you, I've said since I was a child, it's I want to be a storyteller. But but what kind of career is that? I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the blueprint is to become a storyteller. That's not like a doctor where you go to school and these are the steps you take and you get an MD. It's a different desire. And the the opportunity to become a storyteller really did come out of the 
effort I was making to feel something different and to tell myself a different story. And by doing that, so many things happened that just reconfirmed for me that I was on the right path. Yeah, it's like follow your bliss and the doors open, like Joseph Campbell says. It's so true. But I, you do have to be a little bit patient. And I think that's something we don't have in our 20s always. We want things to happen instantaneously. Yeah, I actually, yeah. Um, I am one of the most impatient people in the world. Yeah. And my friend, as I wrote in my book, regularly tells me I plan lunch at breakfast. Like, I don't just want it now. I want I want the future events now. Yeah. And I want to know what's going to happen in the future now. So making a habit out of just doing a little practice in the morning and at night and not seeing results immediately was definitely challenging for me. But the more I stuck with it, it was like, you know, one day somebody telling me you should really do this. And then a day later it being that that opportunity to do that came up. And then it was literally like that. Like the more I did it, the more things happened like boom, boom, boom in a row. And that, that was a sign for me that I was on the right track. It's like the universe gave me all green lights. When I put the work in, I got all green lights. Yeah, yeah. I love how you talk about in your book how you were really a work in progress. And, you know, I'm 54. I'm still a work in progress. So it, it's it's beautiful that you write like that because you give everybody else permission to also be. We don't have to be perfect. We just have to start, you know. Exactly. So um, let's talk about what you learned from your mom and her little meditation sign. I think that is so cool. I wish I'd had that when my kids were little. So tell us about that. Yes, my mom is one of the most calm, centered, grounded, peaceful, compassionate, loving. I mean, I could go on and on. She really is. And she credits so much of this to her twice daily meditation practice that she has done since before I was born. Um, and when I was a kid, my mom had a sign that she has to this day, except instead of it being a sign that she drew with a crayon, it's now laminated and has its own little hanger that hangs on the door handle. Oh, that is cool. <laughs> and it cool. says, do not disturb. Mom is in meditation. And since I was a child, when that sign was on the door, we all knew what that meant. Mom's meditating. Don't disturb. And Honestly, maybe other parents were meditating. I mean, I'm sure other parents were meditating when when I was a kid. I just didn't know them. So for me, it was like my mom was meditating before anybody I knew knew what meditating was. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. That's living it, you know, living the living your living what you're teaching, you know. Um, it's so cool that you're able to so beautifully carry the message of your dad's and your mom's teaching to sort of a new generation. What do you feel your message is and how is it a little bit unique? How is it Serena's? I think that the the difference between my dad and I is that, um, well, I think there's a lot of differences. One is that I have had to painfully and slowly learn that you don't have to suffer to be wise. And you don't have to suffer to have credibility or knowledge. And this is the reason why I say that is because I think sometimes a lot of people have a have a lot of respect for my dad because he had an uneasy upbringing. Mm. He had a difficult childhood and he sort of, um, you know, I don't want to say suffered because he didn't view it that way, but 
I think that there's this feeling that we often get when somebody has negative circumstances and they're able to overcome them. It's like cheering for the underdog in a way. We all like that. I didn't have those circumstances. And for the longest time, I felt unworthy of good things happening because I felt that good things only happen if you've suffered enough. And I think, honestly, it was reading Man's Search for Meaning when Viktor Frankl said that there is no honor in suffering if suffering can be avoided. It really hit me. Like, Serena, you can have wisdom and compassion and knowledge just by being a human being on this planet. You don't have to suffer for them. And that was something that I felt deeply. And and the reason I say that also is because I so often witness my friends that are parents or parents of my friends say things like, I don't mind not having the things happen in my life as long as they happen for my child, or I don't mind giving up my dreams as long as my child has theirs. And I think, you know, there, there isn't necessarily honor in that. And I was headed down that path of probably doing that same thing until I realized that the greatest gift my parents gave me was demonstrating for me that they were worthy of their own dreams. And by doing so, they unknowingly gave me permission to do the same. They didn't sacrifice for me and they didn't suffer for me. And that makes me feel empowered to treat myself the same way. And in doing so to hopefully give permission for other people to do the same. So I think the difference between my dad and I is that I didn't have challenging circumstances like he did that I had to overcome, but I still had to overcome my own and they were still just as valuable and valid as his, even though they didn't involve the level of suffering that he had. Right. And that's okay. Yeah. Your dad always told you, you write in your book that you had to find your own Dharma and you know, we all do, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think the other difference between my dad and I is I think that I, um, I don't, believe that at 29 years old, I have as many spiritual life lessons to share. I believe that I have more of, um, let's say, a willingness to be vulnerable, and I can share that. But I don't have quite the wisdom that he has at, you know, obviously, he's 74, I'm 29. So I think that that's also a big difference. Well, I think a lot of you are born awake. A lot of you young people in my generation and your dad's generation has a lot to learn from you. So, you know, just step up to the plate and (laughs) enjoy the ride and and teach us some stuff. So you talk in your book really candidly about your your folks splitting up, um, how hard it was. And it was sort of a defining period for you, it seemed to me. I just had this conversation with my daughter who has a really close friend whose parents are are splitting and he's having a rough time and um it's kind of an awakening when you when you realize that your parents are people did have you had that yet because i remember when i first realized my parents were not these perfect beings that that and they're just people and they're fallible and and it's sort of like you can meet them on an that's when you become an adult i think i get what you're saying yeah i i think that i um from a very young age, I think I had more of an understanding that my parents were people. And I think I had compassion for them because I knew that. I didn't view them as this like superhuman category called my parents where 
their lives started when mine started. I really always sort of had this awareness that that they were on their own path as well. And luckily for me, I, I picked them. But I didn't ever feel like their lives were owed to me because I was their child in some way. Yeah, yeah. That Well, then you're way ahead of the game, girl. <laughs> I love that you say I picked them. When my parents had their 50th wedding anniversary, I threw a big party and I made a video for them. And I said... Um, I talked about how I chose them as parents and everybody laughed at me. <laughs> Nobody took it seriously, but I was dead serious. And so now that's the big family joke. I always say, aren't you glad I picked you for parents? <laughs> yeah, I actually yeah. absolutely believe that we pick our parents. And even if you have had rotten ones in this lifetime, I believe it's because they had something to teach you. So I, I, I'm a firm believer of that as well. Yeah. I also loved your chapter on uh, treasuring your divinity. I, I think it was that chapter where you talked about David Hawkins. And I saw, wasn't that the chapter? Like you talked about the muscle testing and, and anyway. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I, I had a total Oprah aha moment during that chapter. You know, when you talked about um, power versus force and and I had read this before, but it never really sunk in. And so power is what we want, what that is. And maybe you can describe it better, but force creates an opposite reaction. So, right. so explain that because I totally got it when you wrote it and I've never gotten it before. So there you go. Well, to try and explain it really <laughs> simply, power, I think, is standing on your own two feet. That is your power. That is you. Force is creating a counter force. Force is standing on your own two feet while pushing in in some direction. And anytime you're you're creating force, you're going to create a, a reaction back, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you push against a door, the door eventually is going to spring back. It's a it's a common sense thing when you kind of break it down. I think that for me, force is something I really struggle with because force is when you create a momentum that's going to come back at you in a way that you might not want whereas power is standing on your own two feet and allowing and I tend to create I tend to do to do force I tend to have a lot of force and counterforce in my life it's like I can't just allow things to happen I want to always push for them and push for them and power versus force is like you know, you almost think that those two go hand in hand, but they're really polar opposites. And that's what he explains in his book, Power Versus Force, which is a brilliant book, which luckily for me was really broken down for me by my dad when I was younger. And I, and I got it in the way he explained it to me. So I just kind of regurgitated what he had said to me. But I think that's a, a really simple way to explain it. Power is like standing on your own two feet and forces creating pressure, pressure or or push or resistance yeah it made so much sense and then when we when we are for example you use this example when we're in an athletic competition if we're running to if we've set a goal for ourselves and we're running versus if we're competing with someone else we'll always do better if we're competing against ourselves and trying to achieve a goal of our own right yeah exactly (laughs) i think when you are standing in your power you are you know, it sounds like it's an obvious thing, but it's like you're really actually empowering yourself. You're adding power to yourself when your focus is on you and when you're living in the place of, I am bettering myself for me. I am competing against me. When you add an opponent or a competitor and your energy or your focus is on 
racing against them or beating their time, you've created a force against you now where you're actually weakening yourself. And I mean, he, he does scientific experiments to Mm -hmm. prove this. This isn't just like an idea he has. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way you explained it though. It totally made sense for me in a way that it never has. So there you go, miss teacher. So, um, And the other thing is you say the secret reason to treasure our divinity is so that we don't get disconnected from our source, and that's how we lose our power. Huge. Right. Exactly. I think that our our connection to our source is the connection to the peace of God that is within us. When we treat ourselves uh, poorly, when we have thoughts of like guilt or shame or fear, we're literally treating the God within us lower than it actually is and we're weakening ourselves when we treat ourselves from a place of love forgiveness understanding compassion we're keeping that connection between ourselves and and the peace of god that's within us we're keeping that connection rust free and in doing so we are empowered it's just an energy it's just a an energetic thing i mean this isn't even like something that can be debated einstein proved it so how do you reconnect to source? I have to do it by gratitude. It's the thing that is the most um, clear for me. Like, I feel really good when I'm saying thank you. And I make a point of thanking um, the peace of God that is within me, the I am presence in me and God outside of me. I make a, a point of thanking all of it all of the time for the knowing that I'm a piece of God. I make a point of thanking it all the time for things that haven't even happened yet. Like as I said, living from the end, you know, living from the space of it's not even here, but I know it is here, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, gratitude for me is the greatest way to stay connected to source. As I think I, I wrote in, not I think I know, I wrote in uh, Treasure Your Divinity, my story about um my experience in Assisi and I explained that when I was a kid we had the prayer of Saint Francis framed in a picture outside of my bedroom and my dad used to tell us that the prayer of Saint Francis is not just a prayer it is a technology it is a science when you say dear God make me an instrument of thy peace where there is no peace let me bring peace you are literally saying dear God let me be the thing that is lacking in my life and in doing so I not only serve others I serve myself which is God and if you can can really get that and live from that space of knowing that thank you and asking to be more like what it is that you seek you're you're doing like a scientific brilliant service to yourself you're like um it's not like saying dear god i don't have any peace why don't you give me any peace and you give my neighbors some peace you're if you if you come from that place you're coming from a place of lack which i believe god doesn't even understand god is all abundant and if you come from a space of lack it's like you're just creating more lack and aligning with more lack in your life if you're coming from a space of let me be what it is that I seek. And in doing so, let me serve others. It's like you're saying, use me to the greatest good. And in doing so, I get it too. And that's not why you do it, but it's always the outcome. And thus the uh, experience that you had 
in Lords. Right? In Lords, yeah, yeah. yeah. In Lourdes, we don't want to. We don't want to tell them too much because they need to read this because that is like a miracle that happened to you. <laughs> I I really felt like it was a miracle. Yeah. I had a recent one where I also felt like it was a miracle, and I think that it's a matter of not asking what's in it for me. It's like I think I really do. I think that the way to have a miracle show up in your life is to perceive yourself as capable of having them, which is the most important thing. And the second most important thing is to say, how may I serve? How may I help this miracle that I want happen for someone else? It's not saying what's in it for me. What do I get out of it? Well, how is this going to benefit me? I think when you say miracles happen in my life and I want the miracle of um, you know, prosperity to show up in my life. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to help other people get it. I think when you live from that space, it's like what my dad always says, you do not get in life what you want. You get in life what you are. And when you live from that space, you will experience miracles. It's a guarantee. Yeah, yeah, I love that. That's so beautiful. You have to read, if nothing else, read it for that chapter. That's so such an inspiring chapter. I love, I love your dad's writing at the end of each chapter, how he comes in and sort of recaps what you're saying and puts his, his spin on why he taught you guys these specific things. And it's just so beautiful. Who are, aside from Wayne Dyer, of course, who are some of your favorite contemporary teachers? Um, well, my mom, but I know she's not. Of course you know, necessarily a well-known contemporary teacher. Oprah is probably the most influential for me at this point in my life because what she represents for me is doing in life what it is that you love, but doing it in a place of service. I think that she elevates the consciousness of people she's around on a regular basis. And my mom and I had a habit of watching her show together every day when I got out of school. Don't you miss that? I used to watch that too with my daughter and my mom. I mean, oh. I miss it. It was a topic of conversation in my household every day, whoever was on her show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Super Soul Sunday is is cool. Very cool. Super Soul Sunday is cool. And I think that Super Soul Sunday is very powerful. I think that you have to really be wanting to listen to spiritual lessons in a way to get it. and, and And I love that. But I also love some of the other shows that she does because I think that they have the spiritual teaching without trying to teach you which I always like yeah definitely so I would say Oprah is um top of my list right now I'm really rooting for Hillary Clinton just because I like seeing females in power and in positions of power and um uh, my sister and I have been closely following the story of Malala, the girl who was shot in the head Mm. in Pakistan and what Mm -hmm. she's now standing for and how she's turning just such a horrible situation of hatred into global love, global compassion and global love. And I love what she's able to do with what has happened to her. And my friend Dana, who I wrote about in my book, who is the greatest example of forgiveness and the power of forgiveness that I have seen, maybe besides um, you know some of the uh, Holocaust survivors and and Immaculate Ilibigiza who right. you know forgave the uh, men who murdered her Tutsi family in Rwanda. I mean, I love stories of people forgiving, and I think that um, Dana and Immaculate are two really strong examples of that. And Dana was literally thrown off a cliff. You guys, I mean, her story is is crazy and for her to be able to forgive and 
come back even stronger. It's amazing what you write about her. Let's talk about a couple of things that you're really passionate about. You don't really talk about it in your book, and I didn't know this about you until I read your bio, but human trafficking, how did you um, get involved in in that, and what are, you, what are you doing, and what can we do about it? I got involved in human trafficking while I was doing my master's degree. I was studying um, different human rights violations, and I came across a line in a United Nations fact book, which said that there are more people enslaved today than there were at the height of the Atlantic slave trade. It's amazing. And I read that line, like, I don't know, seven times or something, because I couldn't wrap my mind around the idea that these movies that we see um, about the Atlantic slave trade and about slavery, I couldn't wrap my mind around the idea that, that that was going on today in greater numbers. And after some research, what I came to find out is that although it doesn't necessarily look so much like the movies that we see, it very much is still slavery and it just has a different name and that name is human trafficking. And um, I became particularly interested because women's rights are um, something that I'm always I've always been and I always feel passionate about and I always feel a desire to do more for global women's issues and this really has become a woman's issue unfortunately. It it hasn't in a way that it still affects um, a lot of men and boys around the globe but primarily the human trafficking that I looked into was sex trafficking and that typically has a female edge to it. And I became involved in a few local organizations. Um, One of them is Christy House in Miami. And I worked with a woman out in LA named Libby Spears who made a documentary on um, domestic trafficking of girls and minors. And um, I think the best way to get involved is to read about it and then talk about it and raise awareness. Because in each state across the country right now, laws are being put in place to prosecute the buyer and the seller because in a lot of states right now the person who is prosecuted is the victim um they will call it prostitution but i don't know any 14 year old girl that wakes up and says i'm going to prostitute myself today typically i mean 99 percent of the time they're trafficked and right now in so many states it's those girls that are being arrested and put in jail and charged with criminal acts even though they had a buyer and a seller um, who put them in that place in the first place so i think that the more we know about it the more we read about it the more we talk about it the more likely we are to pay attention to when bills are being passed when laws are being passed that protect these children and right now in america that's the best thing we can do globally um i think donations to different global organizations that particularly help children from being sold into the sex trafficking world are huge. I believe that there are many organizations that have people on the, literally on the streets in the field rescuing children from this type of life. So um, I think just awareness is the best way. And then if you have money to give, I think that giving to something like UNICEF or the Somali Mom Foundation out of New York, there's a lot of different organizations that Um, that you can get involved in, even in your own community. But 
but awareness, talking about it, those are the yeah. best things, in my opinion. Okay, me too. I think don't stop talking about it, because the media kind of lets things go when they're, you know, not the popular thing to talk about. So. Exactly. So the other thing, I wasn't going to bring this up, but then Robin Williams last night, uh, you write really candidly about how addiction has touched your family, and it's touched mine. And I actually did a uh, an interview with uh, an author who... Uh, there's so many different statistics, but something like 20 million people in this country are addicted to something. And for every person who's addicted, it affects five people. If you have a big family like yours, it affects even more. Um, let's just talk about the importance of awareness. And maybe we can just end with a prayer for Robin and his family, because it's just such a pervasive issue in this country. And, and because of the shame, I don't think we talk about it enough. And, you know, finally today, thank God, we're talking about it a little bit more. So I agree. I think that, um, you know, addiction is sometimes something that people don't want to recognize as illness, because they, they view it as just a lapse in character or a lapse in morality. And we tend to judge people that have addiction really harshly as if, as if they chose it as if it's their fault. And I think because of that, so much shame for the addict comes out and depression and, and thoughts of safe self-hatred and wanting to inflict harm on oneself as it seems like Robin Williams did is unfortunately just such a pervasive side effect of addiction and the depression and self-hatred that that comes about from this and I think that um I I understand being a family member and being frustrated and hurt and angry with somebody that you love that has an addiction and I understand how valid you are in feeling angry and resentful and hurt and let down and all these other things that this addiction has brought into your life. I've been there. I, I totally get it, but it doesn't serve you and it doesn't serve them by living from the space of judgment. It just doesn't. It only serves you to love them. In fact, my belief is that one of the biggest crimes an addict commits is just not loving themselves, just not finding worth in themselves. And if we can really recognize that as the root of the issue, then why would we condemn them for that if we could love them? And that's the space I choose to take with the person in my family that um, that battles addiction. I did not get to this road immediately, and I did not get there Mm. easily, and I did not get there without a major resistance to this approach in the beginning but now I'm at a point in my life where I choose love and it is a choice and I don't want this person that I love so dearly to feel shame I don't want them to feel guilt I want them to feel my love if that's the only thing I can do for them because they just you know this person in my family just doesn't have it for herself and and who am I to judge her for not loving herself yeah, what a beautiful soul you are, Serena. Maybe before, maybe we can ask everyone else to join us in a little um, prayer or moment of silence at the end of this. But before we do that, can you tell us uh, more information about you? Where can they go and where can they find your book? Sure. Um, so I have a website, which is serenadyer.com. And my book is on there. And it's also on Amazon or hayhouse.com. And I'm on Facebook and Twitter, so I'm widely available if you want to connect. And 
I, like you said in the intro, I recently got married, so that's exciting. Congratulations. And, I didn't say Thank you. And that's pretty much it. I'm just doing book stuff and traveling and enjoying it. Awesome. Well, I, I recommend your book to everyone. It's a beautiful reflection of everything your mom and dad have taught you and and a beautiful hope for a, a long career of your own as a teacher and an author and whatever else you want to be. And you know what? Let me just also offer this. I pretty much suck as a dancer, too. So you write that in your <laughs> book. And, um, right. and my daughter, who's a Broadway actress, wasn't the best dancer either. So any, you can learn to dance. I mean, that's right. like no, no biggie. So maybe we could all join together and just offer a little prayer for Robin and for all who are in re- recovery and are perhaps inspired to reach out today, this day, for help with an addiction. May you be guided to your highest good and may we all be more compassionate with each other as we learn more about the diseases of addiction and mental illness. And if you want to add anything, Serena. If you are suffering from addiction or depression or feelings of not being worthy, just try and recognize that there's a piece of God within you. You are wanted, you are loved, you are here for a reason. Try and take the rust off of your connection with God, off of your connection with the peace of God that you are. I think in doing so, you'll find that that you can shed the shame and the guilt and the fear. You can live from a place of knowing you're loved and, and being loved. And that's my wish for everybody that doesn't feel it. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Serena. I I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And thank you for your beautiful work and your beautiful book. Oh, thank you. And thank you for having me. 